Lord God, we thank you for the relationship we have with you. We do not pray to an unknown God. We do not pray to a God made by human hands. We pray to the God who created all things. Without him, nothing exists that exists. Lord, we lift your name on high. You are the God of gods. You are the King of kings. You deserve all glory and authority. And we worship you. And Lord, like Daniel's three friends, we honor and worship you, whether you answer our prayers the way we want them answered or not. Because you are perfect and righteous in all that you do. But we are your children. You told us, Lord, to petition you, to request of you, to humble ourselves, to bring ourselves independent, where we are dependent upon you. And Lord, we confess that we live too often independent of you. And the reality, Lord, is we have nothing without you. And so, Lord, this evening, this group here that call this church their their home we lift up to you praise you are do that praise you are you are honored by that lord you are worthy of that and yet we come to you for help from whence does our help come it does not come from man It doesn't come from our own resources. It comes from you. And we ask, the Lord, that you would hear our cry, that you would meet our needs. And we pray, Lord, whatever you do and how you do it and when you do it, you will always and every time get the glory from this group of people. And we will praise you for that. And so, Lord, we come to you, your children, and we ask you, humbly for help. Hear our prayer in your blessed Son's name who provided our way to you in His name, Jesus our Savior. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 30. We've come to a point in this journey to the promised land where we're back in some of the laws. The last couple of weeks, we've been, last week particularly, we hit all the laws of the feast and the sacrifices and preparation for this nation to be in the, the promised land. And then we come to verse 30 and we come to an interesting passage. It's the law of vows, particularly. And what's highlighted in this is the role of children and women. Now, as we think about times of crisis, I don't know if you've ever been in a time of crisis. You probably have, and if you haven't, you will be in one soon. And God's people, in times of crisis, both men and women and children, will turn to God in prayer. We just did that. We turn to God in prayer. And it's often these difficult times where our prayers will often, sometimes, even today, turn into vows. This happens, right? 
There's been more than one prayer or vow given in a foxhole in a very difficult time during war. Vows were very common throughout the Old Testament. There are times when there is a vow to request of God. If he does something, they would do something in return. We see this in Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. He's on his way down to his mother's family. He stops in Bethel on the hill there. There he makes a rock for his pillow. And in the middle of this, verse 20, Jacob made a vow, the Bible says, to God. And he said, God, if you will be with me and if you will keep me on this journey that I take and if you will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Interesting vow, isn't it? Verse 22, this stone, remember he laid his head on a stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you will give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This later becomes known as Bethel, the house of bread. Um, This place of great years and years of worship comes to this place. Numbers chapter 21, just not too many weeks ago, we saw a vow given by the nation of Israel to wipe out the Canaanites. God charges them with this. Chapter 21, when the Canaanites, when the Canaanites, the king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hands, then I will utterly destroy these cities. And the Lord heard the vo- voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and then they were utterly destroyed, them and their cities. Thus the name of that place was Hormah. And so there's a vow by the nation themselves gave it. We see vows that are very precious also, very personal, ones we would maybe, um, maybe understand a little more. Uh, probably, probably the most personal one that we see is Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1. The Bible says in verse 10 that she was greatly distressed. Remember I tell you, prayers and vows and promises and things like that often come when we're greatly distressed. That's who we are, right? We're fallen creatures living in a fallen world and we need help at times. And so Hannah, greatly distressed, the Bible says, prays to the Lord. You can see this combined with the vow. Prayer is often combined with a vow. She prays to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and the razor shall not come on his head much there isn't there but here you see a woman a godly woman one of the matriarchs that we love to study and understand why she was the way she was is making a vow you go to the book of Jonah Um, Jonah gives some vows and he is too in a very desperate situation isn't he and Jonah finds himself in a place where uh, most of us (laughs) will hope to never be. And there in chapter 1, he, he says, look, you're going to have to throw me over. There's no hope. God is not going to relent. He's already put this, this great wind on the boat, and if you throw me over, then you will be safe. And you know in chapter 2, 
finally comes this prayer, and you can, just the description of where he is, you can see the scene of him inside the belly of this great fish that most likely God even probably created to swallow him. Um, and there he's there, and in the midst of that seaweed flowing, whatever must have been in there, he vows to God that he would obey him. New Testament has some vows. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea to Syria. And with him was Priscilla and Aquila. In Caesarea, he had to cut his hair for he was keeping a vow. We'll talk about that a little bit. Chapter 21, he goes with a group of men to take a vow with these other men. There he was kind of pressured by the local believing uh, Jews and Gentiles to do this uh, as a testimony to the Jews. And then we see oaths that are probably wicked, vows that are probably wicked. There was a group of men that wanted to kill Paul, chapter 23 of Acts, verse 12. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a oath, under a vow, saying that they would neither eat or drink until they killed Paul. That was a good diet program because they lost a lot of weight. And that vow was broken, isn't it? However, when you get to the New Testament, there's very little taught on vows in oath. And I think this is mostly because of the New Covenant, our relationship with Christ, particularly the role of the Spirit. I'll get into that in a little bit um, to understand why that is. But as we return to the book of Numbers here, we're reminded that Israel would have a crisis The Canaanites are warring against them, took some of them captive, and all of a sudden, what are they doing? Let's give a vow. And then once everything's okay, what do they do? They go back to sinful ways. And it isn't very many chapters later, remember, they're bowing down to Baal, and they're into immorality, and a plague comes, and yeah, we looked at all that. And so this has been their habit of mishandling vows before God and not fulfilling them. The Old Testament, God's very serious about vows. If you give a vow, it's extremely serious to God. Serious to the fact that it made its way into the scriptures like this. Ecclesiastes says this, chapter 5, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he, God, takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe. Isn't that interesting? He connects fools with being late. Now, I'm not going to talk about you people showed up late. (laughs) I mean, my house, it's better never than late. But, hey, we won't go there, okay? If you're going to be late with a vow, the whole thing's about vows, right? Go pay it. So it's very serious in the Old Testament. And I think this type of command was just prevalent throughout the Old Testament. Vows were promises to God. And they were always accompanied with sacrifice. So you made a vow. As you kept that, you ended that vow with a sacrifice before God, and usually they were promises to abstain from something or a vow you would keep to honor God in some way, and when you were finished with that vow, they were anywhere from 30, remember we talked about this in Leviticus chapter 27, they were 30 to 60 to 90 days, and at the end, you sacrificed. Now, there were times where vows could literally not be fulfilled, and what do you do with that? You have a young boy who says, Dad, I want to go and be uh, a priest in the tabernacle, I want to serve God. I want to offer the sacrifices. I want to do all that. Well, son, you're from the tribe of Manasseh. 
You can't do that. But dad, I vowed to God that I want to do it. You're not from the tribe of Levi. You cannot go. In fact, they will kill you if you try to go in there. So there was vows, right? That, that would be something obvious that could be made. Some young boy would have done that. And a father, and this text helps us understand this, that if he hears that vow, he can nullify it. And we'll see the grace of God even in that. And then we come to the role of women. And here this text really helps us understand the biblical headship that God set in, in place from the beginning, which has not changed, as women are given to their husbands, fathers, and they're placed under that authority. And Numbers chapter 30 deals prominently with women and their vows and really what it's about. And I hope you're going to see this tonight, how God is gracious to women and how he protects them. I think that's what this chapter is about. Now, but why does God give this chapter of vows and laws at this particular time? Why does that all happen right now? They're on their way. They're on the door. They're right there. The Midianites are about ready to fight against them in chapter 31. I was hoping to get to that, but I had too much fun with this today. Um, uh, and, and I mean, they're right there. Jericho and the Jordan and the replacement for Moses has already been selected. It's all right there. Why now? Why does this given at this particular point? Well, it fits very well with 28 and 29. There was the list of sacrifices, how they were to do that, particularly for the priests to do that. But then there was all the festivals that come in there and the times of thanksgivings. And so when a vow was completed, you gave a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God and that fit in these feasts. Most of the feasts were people from families and tribes coming in sacrificing not only sin offerings for sin that may have occurred in their life, certainly that was there, but often those sacrifices were sacrifices of praise, whether that be for the harvest or, or whatever it be that for that festival. So it does fit very good that these were here. Vows were sealed with sacrifices. And when their vow was completed, they thanked God for that. And this would require them going to tabernacle. So it really fits in this time with 28 and 29. And you know, if, you're, if you know the story on Hannah, why were they there? They were there for a festival. They went up from their tribe. They went up to Shiloh to have that festival. So she's there. She's offered her sacrifice of praise to God. But on her way back, she stops near the tabernacle, near the temple. And there she weeps before God and makes another vow. We know she comes back later, offers the child, goes up and sacrifices to the Lord. It's a beautiful story. You should read it again. I know it will encourage you. Psalms chapter 50 verse 14 highlights this. The psalmist says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. There's a connection with worship and vows in the Old Testament. It was important. Now another reason why this is placed probably here is that vows were given during times of great distress often, right? We've talked about that. And there's a great distress coming. You're about ready as a nation to go to war. And not with just one nation, but multiple nations. People after people. Jericho is just the start. And then it's Ai and so forth. And there's just one group after another group after another group. They are about to do this. And guess who's going to war? Not like today in America. Women are staying home. It's men. And now you have homes with women and children in them. Can you imagine a few vows would be given? How many of you have had children in the military? 
or you've had husbands or wives in the military. And a conflict rises. We went through this not long ago with cannons shipped off to Iraq. And you go, you pray. You pray and you ask God. Now, that can happen in a lot of circumstances, just not that. But this, I think, is certainly why this is here. Remember, he said, we're, gonna, we're now going to wipe out the Midianites. And, and Balaam's going to get wiped out in that as well. That's coming in the next chapter. And so this is a time of distress. And you're probably going to make some vows here. Maybe children praying for their daddy. God, I will do this if you bring my daddy home safely. Women who want their husbands home may give a vow in this great time of distress, and they were to keep these. Third, it may be likely that there is an update of the law here as well. You remember in chapter, um, a couple chapters ago in 27, there the laws updated with Zoholophehad's daughters, right? That got updated. There's times where there's, and there's a bit of updating because Leviticus 27 covered this, but now there's an update, and it really focuses on I think the more vulnerable, the, the wives, the women, and the children. And so I think those are the reasons why this is placed here. They're about ready to go in. All these things are going to happen. Vows are going to be given. And God wants them to know how to handle these. Now, whatever the reasons are here, um, fully for this to be placed here, those who walk with God knew that it was important to handle their vows according to the word of God. And, and, and again, if you just search this in the scripture, um, do word searches, you find so much in the Old Testament. Psalms 116, 12 to 14. Listen to this. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? We know that psalm, don't we? This is a psalm that says that God cares for those who die. I mean, this is a great psalm. But here he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all the benefits towards me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to worship him, thank him for his salvation, thank him for his character, his name, and who he is. And then it says this, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of his people. That tells you a lot. So where do you pay, the, pay for your vows? You pay in the presence of God and his people. That was at the temple. And so that gives you a little bit of history of vows and how that's being made there. And then you come to this chapter. And it's quite unique. And so let me give you just a couple of thoughts through here. Number one, God's protection through his design for the family. Look at the first two verses. Then the Lord, then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has command. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Well, you'll notice in these first two verses, it's clear that this is coming from God, right? Verse 1, no, no doubt, isn't it? It's clear. It's coming from God. Verse 2, you see something unique here. And, and probably this is referring back to the earlier vows, it's referencing Leviticus 27, because there we saw it there, particularly with men. And the first law was given for the giving of vows, and a sacrifice was to come with it. It's been recorded. But now in verse 2, notice he's holding men uniquely accountable here for their vows. It's very clear. He's not using a term that would say mankind. He's talking about males in these first two verses. They are to take their vows extremely serious, and they're to proceed. Anything that comes out of their mouth, as they say it in their mouth, they are to keep it. And notice in this verse, there are no exceptions. This is what's going to change. There's no exceptions for men. 
And as usual, God is holding the men to a higher standard in a sense. We see that, right? And we believe that as men. God gives us responsibilities as men. Yes, we have different roles. And yes, men carry a certain responsibility that women don't and vice versa. But men are given the headship in their homes. And so there is a great responsibility given here. And I thought that was fascinating. I noticed that right off the bat, there's no exception for them. Now, we know in the New Testament, men will reflect the person of Christ, particularly husbands, and we see that very high uh, and very beautiful and very carefully kept role that God calls us to. But here in chapter 30, the primary concern is those underneath their authority. So first he establishes, look, man, we already talked about this in chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 27. I don't think that chapter is in that yet. But we already talked about this. This is for me, and there's no exceptions. You keep, it comes out of your mouth, you keep it. But now he turns to the exceptions. And as we'll see throughout this chapter, women's vows are, they're in contrast to the man's, right? They, there's subjects here in qualifications that we see that he gives to these women and to children, I think. I think I can make that clear here. That are different. I see four different things that he does differently. In verses 3 through 5, he first speaks to unmarried girls who are still under their father's authority. So they're unmarried. They're, they're not left the home. They're still underneath the father's authority. Two, um, in verses 6 through 8, there's a woman unmarried at the time when she gives the vow. But then by the time the vow is fulfilled, she's now married. So he's going to deal with that. Third, it pertains to widows and divorce people. So he gives a vow there in verse 9, gives an understanding of that. And then in verses 10 through 16, he comes down to married women. Now it's important to note that the women or children had the right to make a vow to God under their own initiative. So these are, we're going to see women and children in the Old Testament here making a vow to God on their own initiative, not provoked or pushed by their father or mother. Um, This is their own initiative. Now, the legitimacy of the vow, here's what's interesting, depends on the the man, meaning either the father or the husband, depending on what the situation here. And you say, well, Scott, uh, you know, in our day-to-day, that doesn't go over very good. But listen, this is God once again establishing the role, the biblical role of men and women. Again and again and again he establishes it. Now, we see laws get updated, um, not change, but updated for circumstances like this one and like the daughters in 2027, 20, um, but, but they just grow in strength. And, and this one never changes. From the Garden of Eden, God set the order and the roles of men and women. And I think that's very important that we see in here. He's establishing it, and that is for protection. It is for protection of women and children. Now, as we'll see, our view on vows and oaths will change under the new covenant. So be careful here. I don't want you to go down too many roads here. We're learning here, and, but it's going to change. But the principle of headship never changes. God calls men to be head of their homes. And when they are not, their great difficulties come. And so that's the clear teaching that I see in here. But from the beginning, man, whether father or husband, God regards him as having authority. And even authority over the vows that are made. Now let's look at 3 through 5 so we can understand that. Verse 3. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house 
in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vow shall stand, and her obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because of her father has forbidden her. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Here we have a young unmarried girl still living in the home. You can see that in the text. And she's clearly still under the authority of her father. And here she makes a vow, but if her father hears it and says nothing, he does not react because he sees nothing wrong with it or or there's nothing to protect her from, there's nothing unwise about that vow, he remains silent and the vow goes forward. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Dad, are you going to say anything about that? (laughs) Zip. Go get him, sweetie. <laughs> but if he, if he does have an objection, if he, if he discourages her from keeping this vow, she must not carry it out. The Bible's clear. She's now, remember, she's under authority. His there is to protect her. She may be making a vow that is not good for her, one she cannot keep. And notice at the end of verse 5, at the end of that, the Lord forgives her because her father has forbidden it. His father has the wisdom, he has the oversight, he has the authority over And if he sees something that is not one of God, two would not be good for her to try to do that vow. He has the right to protect her. And God forgives her. There's a beautiful umbrella of headship over this sweet young girl. Now, If the vow is not fulfilled, excuse me, if the vow is not stopped, right, if he doesn't say anything, if there's no restriction from dad, and she doesn't do it, the Bible says it's sin, because here, if she doesn't fulfill it, and yet he says nothing, it's sin. And this is real important, because only the father can say no to that. If she makes a vow, he says nothing to it, and she doesn't fulfill it, it's sin, Now, that's in the case of all uh, vows that are given. Deuteronomy chapter 23, 21, listen to this. When you make a vow to the Lord, your God, this is probably happening, and so this, this gets updated again in this law of vows. You shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. So to, to say a vow, dad says nothing, you keep it. If you don't, it's sin. And so there we have this situation. And I think these verses are beautiful because it shows that there was probably many cases um, that these young girls, um, and, and meaning they're young, they're quite young. In the ancient world, uh, it's very clear, if you do your study on this, they married early teens. That was just common. Remember, life was very short in the ancient world. It wasn't, it wasn't as long as we live today. And so the commandment is likely to these pre-adolescent girls, in, in a sense, and it protects them. It protects them from making some kind of vow that they would not be able to keep. This is oversight and authority of the father. Look at verses 6 to 8. We come to the next group. However, if she married while under, his, while under her vows or the rash statement by her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the, 
on the day he hears it, then her vow shall stand and her obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow which she, she is under in the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. So now you have a daughter of a man who gets married. They pass from one male to the other. They pa she passes from underneath the authority of the father to the husband. One of the, I think, I think one of the most precious scenes, although I never got a daughter to do this. We won't go there. Um, when they're down here in front and they're given this charge um, and there's this, there's this change of, of authority, right? You've seen this. And who gives this woman to be married to this man, right? It's precious, isn't it? Dad's been working on this. He's sweating, trying to get this right. Uh, her mother and I, whew, you know, they get that out. And then there's this embrace. And, and often you'll see that dad take a hand and another hand and put them together. And then he steps back. Isn't that beautiful? See, that, that, that's, this, this, this doesn't change. God has always developed, God developed this from the garden. This has always been in place. This is not something we're going to see vows different than the New Testament. I promise you we're going to get to that. Um, but, but here we see this authority that she's under, and this is what God's design is. And these biblical principles don't change. And I know there's lots of questions. You say, well, what if I unsaved father and so forth like those? And we handle those case by case. But he, I mean, simply, you obey your father, you're under his authority, unless it's asking you to sin. And that's, that's, I know it's a larger one. We can talk about that later. But um, there, there's that role of honoring God. He placed you under his authority. And we often have, have counseled young gals, what can you do to honor your father by obeying him, even though he's not in the faith? as long as you're not sinning against your God. But here in our text, this second case uh, deals with a situation of a young woman who, who made a vow. She's still living at her father's house. You notice that. But now she's married, and now the vow gets fulfilled. The vow was made, unmarried, under her father. It's fulfilled now in a marital relationship. How does she handle this? Well, you saw it there in the text. Her new husband, she, he learns of this vow. If he says nothing, the vow stands. If he objects it immediately, the vow is nullified and it's stopped. Now, this could be really important. What if she took a vow of chastity? He's probably saying, you know, we're not going with that one. <laughs> I would imagine, right? <laughs> he, he's no dummy when it comes to this. He's, you know, hey, hey I, I know you made this promise to God that you're going to do something, but, you know, that doesn't work in marriage. God told us to be fruitful and fill the earth, and that vow's not going to work. That's an example, right, that may happen. You know, we always had a saying when we were young and thought that we were just going to be ministers for Christ forever. We'd call it, we're bachelors from the rapture. Ra bachelors to the rapture. Or bachelettes to the rapture at, I guess, here. Um, whatever it may be. Maybe you made that vow and all of a sudden you're not a bachelor anymore, a bachelorette. You're married and so you, you have to, your, your husband says, yes, you don't have to keep that. Maybe that's done before the family at the wedding. So there, there, this is the idea that was here. So she's not having to keep something that she made out of a statement of ignorance, of a rash, or something like that. God is protecting her. Notice again in verse 8 that the Lord forgives her. So her binding contract in this vow, God releases it. Then we come to verse 9, the next situation. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced, divorced woman 
everything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Now this is interesting. Here we have a law that deals with a woman who was widowed, her spouse died, or she was divorced for some reason. It doesn't tell us why. It's assumed she most likely will return to her father's house. That's probably what she would do. She, she really doesn't have much to take care of her, so she's going to probably return. I think it's assumed in the text. She's going to be cared by some of her father's dead, maybe her brothers or her sons. But in this situation, notice in verse 9, her vow cannot be annulled by anybody. Sons, brothers, fathers, nobody can annul this. And whatever she has vowed, she must keep. And you would say, well, was this fair? Well, I think here's the key. I think the law here, this portion of law, recognizes her independence. And it recognizes that she has been given the ability to lead her own life at this point. She, she is no longer underneath a husband. He's either dead or left her. And God is recognizing her independence. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think this is not punishment. Don't look at that this way. This is God recognizing that he is going to strengthen and help this woman because she has no one now. And I, I think that's key here. And she is her own woman now. And what she does with the Lord is between her and the Lord now. It's not between her husband or a father. And so we have that situation. Now we come to the last one, 10 through 16. However, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by the obligation with an oath and her husband heard it but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all of her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. This is the fourth case now. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears of them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vow or concerning the obligations of her of her, uh, herself shall, stand, shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them, and the Lord will forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all her obligations which are on her. He has confirmed them because he has said nothing to her on the day he heard it. But if he indeed annuls them after that he has heard them, then she shall bear no guilt. So here now we have a vow of a married woman. She's now married, a vow that's made while she's married. The vow that's taken place after the marriage ceremony. That's when this scene here, the husband now either is allowed to nullify the wife's vow or he can let it stand. He can keep silent and let it stand or he can nullify it. Now, again, I think the key, protect, the key thought here is protection versus punishment. And, and, and I think this goes back, and, and ladies, remember we've talked about this, so please don't throw something at me. Um, we do have different roles, right? And, and what's part of those roles are made up from how things happened in the garden. And when we go back to the garden, we see failures on both of them. The failure on the husband was, the Bible says he was with her, but he failed to protect her. And, and he falls under the consequences of that, and we know he has to toil and labor now, and all of those things come, right? But one of the things that she is, she failed in is a lack of discernment. She's deceived. And 
First Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 reminds us when, we're, when he's dealing in the early church with the roles of men and women, that chapter 2 is a very, very important chapter. Um, in the new, under the new covenant, in, in, in the church, she was deceived, and the Bible reminds her of that. And so, so, please, I'm not looking down on that. What I'm teaching is what God has put in order here is that if a woman makes something a poor decision, she has a covering for her husband who should be, is one with her and should be with her and working through these things. And if he sees that that's some rational thought, that that's not a, not a God thought in this time or a biblical thought we would call now, he has the ability to say, sweetheart, no, no, that's not good for any of us. It's his protection. It's, this, is not, this is not putting, I mean, people that read the Bible that don't know God, they, read, they come to this, these passages and they'll just try to trash you. This is God protecting her. Now, you go, well, what about the husband? Yeah, you remember, verse 1 and 2. <laughs> he's holding everything. So I don't think he's getting off the hook. Whatever it comes out of his mouth, he has to complete. There is no, hey, maybe your wife will, you know, annul this. It's not happening. There's a lot of pressure on him, in a sense, to do what is right according to God all of the time. That's what he's reminding him here. And yet here he is protecting this. Notice at verse 12, on the day, he's supposed to see that on the day. But if day after day, verse 14, if this doesn't happen, she's left to that. And I think we see this probably in the best example is in 1 Samuel with Elkanah, her husband, and Hannah. Now, and you remember in that story, and time, time, for the sake of time, I can't go read that, but you know the story. There she makes that great vow, right? I read that. If you give me a, Lord, if you give me a son, Lord, I will give him back to you. Elkanah shows up. He does not say anything about the vow. He does not nullify it in any way. He does make a stupid comment like, well, you have me. What more do you need? You remember that comment? It's hilarious. Like, Elkanah, just zip it. You're not helping. But he does not in any way nullify that vow. And so she goes on and to keep that vow, and God does uh, allow her to have a child, and she does fulfill that vow, and she comes back and offers a sacrifice and worships God, and the worst we got Samuel, the first great prophet of Israel from that. What a beautiful story, and so we see that there, and so you can see that fulfilled. Verse 16, these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses, as between a man and his wife, and as between a father and his daughter, while she is in her youth in her father's house. That's protection there, brothers and sisters. Way back in the desert, in these very difficult times with war right on your doorstep, with manna still falling from heaven, not able to grow all the food that you're going to sacrifice in the previous chapters, all those are promises. Right in the middle of this, God is showing protection for women and children. Because remember, those girls are pre-adolescent probably. He's protecting them. And I think that's beautiful. So how do we... Go, where do we go from here? Number two, the kindness of God when we are sinfully impulsive. Impulsive is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Anybody made an uh, impulsive decision ever? Bought something you wish you wouldn't have. Gene and I were not too long married, and I came home with a truck one day. Man, that was a dumb decision. It cost us, and we had no money. Um, but I thought we needed it, and you tried to justify it, and in the end, I had to turn it back in. It was just disastrous. Oh, my goodness. Impulsive decision. 
not praying about things. I see, I love this because when I read this, it encourages me by the simple fact that God gives comfort and even encouragement to those who will willingly and sincerely in their hearts put themselves into the situation and say, God, I blew it. I, 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 I said something or I did something I shouldn't have done. And, and I, as I read this, he has put, particularly in the women's life here, in the children's life, he's put a man there to say, sweetheart, that's not what God would have us do. And see, that's how God does us, right? He cares for us. And, and even when we make decisions, our Lord is there to say, Scott, that's not of me. You need to repent of that. And I'll give you grace even in your circumstances. I see that in this text. I see God's grace and I see the kind of love that the greatest pastor of all gives. God. He, he pastors our heart, doesn't he? He shepherds our heart. He, he is kind and forgiving. And he particularly, when, he's, when we come and confess, and that's why I think Hezekiah and so many other passages of people who humble themselves before the Lord, he blesses them and he gives them what they need. He meets their needs in his perfect timing, of course, and so forth. But he meets that. And here you have a woman who maybe made a vow that she... She never could fulfill. And she said it to God. And God says, no, no. I've put you under authority of your husband. And he's going to protect you. As I protect you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 25 says, For you were continually going astray like sheep. But now, great conjunction, you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Ever made a bad decision? Did you turn back to the guardian of your soul? Or did you just try to fix it? Because that's what we do. And in a way, when we try to fix something, we're not acknowledging to God that we failed, that we sinned against his will. We're just going to fix it. And sometimes it doesn't get any better, does it? In fact, then lies start happening. And all, I mean, it just becomes a mess, right? Instead of saying, God, I am wrong. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? And will you give me the strength and the grace to go back and fix this? See, I, I see that. This is what God is doing. And, and because it says, remember it says over and over in this, her sins are forgiven. So this isn't just like, well, I, maybe I shouldn't have bought two cans of milk. This is something, she made a vow, and she's not been able to keep it. This is something that is done in her flesh most likely because now her sin is going to be forgiven because the husband said, no, sweetie, this doesn't work. It's God's protection. And it's absolutely beautiful when you look at this. See, I, I appreciate this wisdom imparted here. And then you think about this, particularly in the whirlwind today that cares very little about authority. If, <laughs> just imagine half of Washington, D.C. watching this sermon right now. I mean, we're done, boys. <laughs> They're coming to get us and locking us up. This is so contrary to the world's philosophy. Women submitting? That's the worst word in the world to, to many women in this country. And yet, it's showing here, and I appreciate this so much, where the world's going this way, God's going this way, he does create authority, does 
great family headship. This is for our good, and this passage shows us the, the great value of submitting to God's design for the family. It's a demonstration of kindness, a demonstration of protectiveness that God has. And I think, brothers and sisters, we should be grateful and thankful that God cares enough about us that he rescues us out of foolish decisions. Aren't you glad for unanswered prayers? This is a funny story, and I hope this woman's not watching. Like a lot of young men, you fall in love with somebody, you think you're in love, and you pray, oh, God, well, you know, this is my wife, I want to marry her. I didn't marry that woman I prayed for, praise the Lord. 20 years later, Gina and I are in a church plant, happily married, four boys, and in walks the woman that I prayed for when I was in high school. I'm in the pulpit. I haven't seen her forever. Gina knows this story. She walks in the back door. And I said, Lord, thank you for unanswered prayers. <laughs> She's already divorced and all kinds of problems. And guess, guess who's up doing the counseling with her new husband? You got to pray for your pastors. We get ourselves into places that we just don't. <laughs> I remember in my mind, I'm preaching away in the back of my mind going, God, thank you for unanswered prayers. You are so gracious to us. You did not give me what I asked for. He gave me her. And I needed her. Even when I didn't know she existed, he knew I needed her. See, that's what our God does. And he's full of grace and he's full of mercy to us. But we have to recognize those things. Third, vows in the New Testament. I've got to hurry here. I'm out of time. I've got to do this in two minutes. I can't do it, but hang on. Three, vows in the New Testament and our Savior's promises. So we've got to ask a question here. Where does this whole discussion of vows happen in the New Testament, right? And, and look, you, you, we saw a couple. There's, there's a couple where Paul keeps a vow um, in chapter 18. He goes and cuts his hair because there was some kind of vow going on there. Um, t- 21, he takes a vow because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to the Jews. We see a few of those. But look, it isn't hard when we look at this and we start thinking about the Christian perspective here. If you just do a cer- certain, uh, just an easy word search. I just typed this into my word search, my, my Bible program th- this morning. I said, vows, vow or vows. All the references, 95% of them were all Old Testament. Less than, probably 5% or less were in the New Testament. So right there tells you something's different of how we handle vows. And it isn't hard to determine that there's a strong connection between the Old Covenant here. This was a covenant work with God and his people here, not so much in the New Covenant. And we know that the Old Covenant could not make one perfect, right? Right? The law could not do that because the flesh was weak. And so the covenant could not save them. It was all pointing forward to a greater covenant fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is biblical theology 101, isn't it? But this old covenant did not operate in the same way the new. And I think particularly because of, of the indwelling of the Spirit of God now. The Spirit of God who comes at salvation through the revealed Word of God now guides and directs the believer. He permanently dwells within you. He, he's there to take the Word of God and, and the glory of Christ and spotlight it on your heart and your mind so you think biblically and you think about Christ and you make decisions that please Him. You don't need to make vows. you got this. <laughs> and you have the Spirit of God going, Scott, that's how you live your life. And when you sin, the Spirit of God is grieved, right? And you can feel him. Hey, I'm in here. 
my temple. Don't bring that in here. Let's do what's right. And so there's this great understanding that the law was a schoolmaster, right, that was set up there, right? Galatians. Didn't you just finish Galatians, Josh? Or somewhere? You're in the middle of that? Schoolmaster. Get in line. Bringing you. Pointing you to the need of Christ. The eternal covenant. And, and that's what he does. And so, so there's a big change there. Now, the Apostle Paul handles vows in a couple of ways. First, um, he He's committed to God. He believes he needs to be faithful. And so whatever vow he was under in chapter 18 and goes and cuts his hair, um, that was something he believed that was between him and God. And I think that still happens. I mean, there's stuff. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I think God wants me to do this. And I said, well, what's your basis for this? Do you have a past scripture? What are you thinking through? Um, why do you? And, and there's just, and, and sometimes you go, uh, I don't know if I can really put a finger on that. But hey, look, don't sin against your conscience. I tell people all the time. If God is pricking your conscience not to do this, and it's maybe not wrong to do it, or it's not right to do it, or something like that. If God's pricking your conscience, do not sin against your conscience. And so we'll tell them that. And, and, and so I, I think probably this is something that Paul had. There was something maybe he was praying for, something he was wanting God to do, and, and, and he decided to fast and, and pray and, and take this vow. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us in Acts 18 what it was about. Now, second, in order to be a stumbling block, he, he takes this vow. Remember, they have to talk him into going, hey, we have four guys. They're going to go down there, and they're going to cut their hair, and they're going to do all this stuff. And, and if you go with them, maybe the Jews won't kill us all. <laughs> you kinda, in Acts 21, it's a fascinating little passage of Scripture, what he does there. And he does, he does that because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block in any way. In fact, that was Paul. He wanted to daily live his life to honor the Lord in word and deed. And so Paul says, look, I, I'm determined to do nothing except glorify Christ. I don't know anything but Christ and him crucified, so I'm not going to cause a stumbling block. And so he goes and does that, and he doesn't want to be in the power of anything. He says, I, I will not be mastered by anything, he says in 1 Corinthians 7. And so he's, he, he's willing to live his life that way. Time doesn't uh, allow me to get to it, but when Jesus deals with vows, he really goes after the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15. He gets on them. Oh, look, you know, yeah, we know we're supposed to honor our father and mother, but, you know, we've got nothing left. We've given it all to the temple. Mom and dad are in the streets dying. Uh, Corbin, <laughs> you remember that passage? And Christ comes out unglued at them. And he exposes their hard hearts and that they don't care about the true law of God. And he shows that. As he gets into the woe passages in chapter 23, does he rake them over for lying and saying they keep these vows and not? And he takes them through quite a few verses there, maybe, maybe a half a dozen verses of just raking them over for false vows and oaths and so forth. And using the temple and using God's name and all of that and yet not fulfilling them. But I love Christ's vows, and let me end with this, Hebrews chapter 10, let's just go there. I, I thought of, okay, where can I show where, in a sense, Christ says a promise or makes a vow, in a sense. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 real quick, and then we'll just close with that. So I thought about this passage because it, it, it kind of sums up everything. And, and I can see it in my mind's eye as Christ does this. Chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, the law can't save you. It's not, it's just a shadow, right? This is a beautiful 
word picture here. And not the very form of things. Who's that form? Jesus, right? Can never by the same sacrifice which they offered continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered. Because the worshiper, having once been cleaned, would no longer have a conscience of sin. Problem is, they had a conscience of sin and they came right back with another burnt offering. They could not clear their conscience by the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was never designed to do that, was to point them towards the final lamb. Of course, we know that in our biblical theology. So, but verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin. Oh, we're sacrificing a lamb today, kids. Why? Because we're sinners. (laughs) Didn't we do that last year? Yep, we did it last year. We're going to do it again. Because we're sinners. Verse 4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, now listen to this. When he, Jesus, comes into the world, he, Jesus, says, who's he talking to? He's got to be talking to the Father. Here's his vow. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I say, Christ speaking here, behold, I, Jesus, have come in the scrolls of the books written of me to do your will, O God. Now that's a vow we're glad he kept. And of course our Lord didn't. He did everything he said. And that really sums up everything when you study his life. And he keeps talking about, I'm here to do the will of the Father. And I'm the bread of life. And all of those great things, all those great commands and statements that he makes are all summed to this, that our Lord Jesus stepped out in a sense, if you want to use this, made a promise. Here's what I'm going to do, Father, because sacrifice and offering is never going to please you. I'm going to vow that I'm going down to earth. I will add flesh to my, my eternal nature, my eternal uh, person and, and equality with you, I'm going to add flesh to it, and I'll be incarnate, and I'm going to die for those you made in our image. Because sacrifice and offering is not going to get it done. That's our Lord. And that's beautiful, isn't it? He loves us. First century Christians use the motivation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and over and over we find passages, because he died for you, you live for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. James said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be men and women of your word. Because Christ died for you. And so the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, this great gospel, is their greatest motivation to live in obedience to the truth now. So now we don't take vows like, okay, Lord, I pledge allegiance or whatever. We have a spirit of God that constantly leading us to the glory and person of Christ to say, this is why I live for him. And this is why I say no to the things that God opposes. Oh, so much more to say about this. i got to quit because I'm late, but what else is new? Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. This is fascinating. Who would have thought, um, as we read chapter Numbers, verse 30, and just kind of read through it in our Bible reading, which is great, Lord, but when we sit down and really look at this and see Here again, you're reminding us of this beautiful, creative order you set in place for men and women. And then, Lord, we see the grace poured out for decisions that were improper or hastily made or even sinfully made. And we see forgiveness come and things annulled. And, Lord, I can't help but think when you forgave us of our sins, you took them away. 
as far as the east is from the west to the deepest of the seas, you choose never to bring them up. The Apostle Paul, who would have been plagued with his conscience of the things he did pre-salvation, Lord, says that he is forgetting the things in the past and pressing forward to the upward calling in Christ. We have the ability to do that. And so we thank you for that grace that really does annul our poor decisions. And Lord, you give grace to help us with the consequences of some of our bad decisions. And I know there's some in here that are going, oh, Scott, I have some consequences. Lord, help us realize that they're consequences. Christ died for the sin. And I pray for those in this room who are struggling with consequences that they would humble themselves, turn to the Lord, and ask for grace in those consequences. You are a gracious God. You love your children. You have proven that. And you are the great shepherd of our souls. And so, Lord... May we be quick to confess, to turn away from sin. And Lord, may you give us grace in those consequences. Lord, thank you for attentive people tonight. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.